0: I remember first seeing an image of the Tree of Life in third grade, in Mrs. Jones's class. It was a giant poster on the wall, right next to the pencil sharpener. Sometimes I would break my pencil on purpose, just to have an excuse to look at the poster. I loved looking at the connections between different organisms. I could see that dogs evolved from wolves, and how turtles and tortoises were related. But as my eyes moved down the trunk of the tree, I began to see some connections that didn't quite make sense at first. Bears share a common ancestor with the sea sponge. Seals are closely related to skunks. It's really amazing to think that over time, different organisms evolved in different ways to make up life on the planet as we know it today. But what's even more fascinating is that this process continues. It never stops. We know about evolution and the origins of the variety of life on Earth because of the discoveries of English naturalist Charles Darwin.
1: Darwin is the historian of life, in a way. Uh, he he finds that our essence is a a becoming essence. I'm uh, Robert Proctor. I'm a professor of the history of science at Stanford University, where I'm also professor by courtesy of pulmonary medicine.
0: Darwin shared his theory of evolution
1: in his 1859
0: book, The Origin of Species.
1: It's possibly the most important book ever published. It's the the book that really links human life to all of the rest of life and and vice versa. Uh, It shows really for the first time that we are all bonded together, all living creatures uh, through a single origin that goes back, as we now know, probably about four billion years.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Robert Proctor to discuss Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. So, what did people believe about the natural world and its relation to human human beings before Origin?
1: Well, of course, it depends on who we're talking about. Um, Most people don't think about these things at all. Um, But a common view in the scientific community was that uh, God had created species in a perfect form. And that uh, the whole idea of species having origins prior to Darwin was an oxymoron. Uh, In the sense that we today would not say that a triangle has a history or blue has a history. Species were ideas in the mind of God that had been created in fixed and final form.
0: This idea was called natural theology.
1: Now there were some evolutionists, uh, notably uh, uh, Lamarck, for example.
0: French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck proposed an early theory of evolution in the early 1800s, roughly 50 years before Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. Lamarck believed that species evolved by passing on acquired traits to their offspring. In other words, he believed acquired traits could be hereditary. To illustrate his theory, he liked to use the example of giraffes. Lamarck hypothesized that as a giraffe stretches its body to reach higher leaves on the trees, its limbs and neck get longer. The giraffe then passes that longer neck on to its offspring. He concluded that the most complex organisms were the ones that had been around the longest, because they'd had the most time to evolve. Since he saw humans as the most complex organisms, he believed humans were one of the oldest species. Today we know that's not true. Humans are actually a relatively new species. Lamarck's theories answered a very important
1: question of the day. He had really proposed evolution because he was trying to get around the specter of extinction. Because there were there had been discovered these fossils of creatures that no longer exist, giant elephants in the Americas, in Siberia, the woolly mammoths, the mastodons in, in the Americas. These were a big puzzle. How could these elephant like creatures exist and not exist anymore? Why had God allowed these creatures to disappear? And Lamarck had a very simple solution. He said, they really haven't disappeared, they've evolved into elephants.
0: Lamarck's theory was easy to accept because it kept God in his place as the great creator of all things. But Darwin's theory of evolution was more radical. He destabilized all earlier beliefs about life. Darwin developed his theories of life and evolution after a historic voyage circumnavigating the globe aboard the HMS Beagle. Tell me about the Beagle trip,
1: well, Darwin comes from this liberal background. He's he's an he's a he's an amateur, meaning a lover of nature. Um, he his dad wanted him to go to medical school, and he didn't like the sight of blood, so he drops out of that. He didn't want to become a minister. Uh, he didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life, and there there was this position as the companion to the captain of the Beagle, Fitzroy. Someone who could dine with the captain so the captain basically wouldn't go insane on this long, long, long voyage. It's, this is one of the other famous stories about Darwin history. You ask who was the naturalist aboard the Beagle. It actually was not Darwin. There was a, a nat, an actual official naturalist named McCormick who was hired to record the nature of the, of the Beagle. Now, luckily, he didn't like the voyage and he dodged out after six months. The aim of the voyage was to better understand where in the world things were. This was an effort to draw very um, accurate maps by measuring uh, longitude. This was a classic problem. How do you find out how far east or west a body of water or body of land is? And so that was really the goal of of the, the voyage. It was not to discover evolution.
0: The Beagle set sail from Plymouth, England in 1831 and returned five years later in 1836.
1: Literally, they they circumnavigated the globe for five years. And what Darwin saw was that the only way you could understand the distribution of life on the planet was through history. So if you go to Cape Verde Islands, one of the first stops off Africa, he noticed that the animals on those islands were variants of the animals from the mainland. What he observed in the Galapagos is that all of the animals in the Galapagos were similar, albeit different from the animals in South America. And so the only way to understand the island life that he was seeing was as, a, as, as having a historical connection to where it had come from, namely the mainland. Because those are volcanic islands and they were all occupied, inhabited, populated by migrations from the mainland, 600 miles away. And so Darwin is showing not that organisms are perfectly adapted to their environments. They are adapted. There is such a thing as adaptation. But rather that to understand the kind of life that exists anywhere, you have to understand where it came from. Cape Verde Islands, it came from Africa Galapagos, it came from South America. And it's that understanding of what we would today call biogeography that really allows him to discover the deep historicity of life. That if you want to understand the distribution of life on the planet, you have to understand where it came from. And that's through the process of migration.
0: This was key. Most people in the 19th century had not traveled as much as Darwin and had not witnessed such a diversity of life around the world. Most people believed what the naturalist theologians believed, that God had created organisms perfectly adapted to their environments. Darwin saw life in a different way. He had a historical view. He saw organisms as constantly evolving to better fit their environments.
1: Darwin showed that organisms are derived imperfectly from their history and that it's, the actu- it's actually the historical imperfections the radical historicity of life that gives you the clue to it having evolved. A great example is the laryngeal nerve of the giraffe. The giraffe, when it speaks or barks or whatever, sound has to go from its larynx to its brain, right? Or brain to its larynx. That's how it, it, which is a very short distance. Let's say it's eight inches. But in fact, the laryngeal nerve goes all the way down the neck of the giraffe and wraps around the aorta and then comes all the way back up uh, to the larynx. So the brain and the larynx are connected by like a 20-foot nerve. That's extremely inefficient. But it can only be explained by the fact that it was a short distance when the giraffe evolved. But with with the lengthening of the neck, the laryngeal nerve had to go a a longer and longer and more circuitous route. Now, a natural theologian would say, well, you know, that, you know that, that, that would be a big puzzle because why wouldn't God have just drawn a straight line from the larynx to the brain? No, you can only understand the laryngeal nerve by understanding that nature cannot go back to the drawing board. It can't recreate. It has to evolve from what already exists. And that's why I say there's a deep historicity and a deep conservatism to evolution, it shows that you can only build on what you already have. This is the metaphor of the tinkerer and not the redesigner. Evolution is a kind of a make-do philosophy. Uh, but I, I do like the fact that it is radically conservative in this sense, in the sense that every cell in your body traces back to an original cell that developed billions of years ago. And that's a, a really a profound, profound insight.
0: From his observations while on the beagle voyage, Darwin developed his theory of evolution. His theory has three main elements. The first is superfecundity, or the tendency of organisms to produce more offspring than can survive. Think of how many eggs a fish lays, or how many puppies a dog has. If every one of those offspring survived and produced the same number of offspring, the planet would be overrun with animals. But not all of the fish or puppies make it to adulthood so only a small number of them end up reproducing. The second element is heritable variations. These are genetic variations that are passed down from parent to offspring. For example, maybe one bird hatches with more feathers than the rest, and therefore it can fly a little faster. The third is survival of the fittest. Some genetic variations are more suited to an environment than others, like the extra feathers that will make a bird fly a little faster, the organisms most suited to their environments will have the greatest chance of survival. And a greater chance of survival means a greater chance of reproducing and a greater chance of passing down those genetic variations to their offspring. Perhaps that bird with extra feathers can avoid predators better than its siblings. It will have a greater chance of survival, and thus a greater chance of producing offspring.
1: And those three elements are all you really need uh, for his theory to work. super fecundity, heritable variation, and then... Struggle for existence and survival of the fittest. And if those things work, if those things are in operation, you'll get evolution. Because
0: Darwin traveled from mainlands to islands, he was able to compare what he saw in both locations. This was a key factor that led him to his evolutionary conclusions.
1: Prior to Darwin, there was not much of this comparative island biogeography. People did not understand. uh, how islands work and the life on islands. Really, you have to discover these things and see the patterns for there even to be an equation. And I think it is this this engineering model that was an obstruction. This idea that God has made a perfect world, God has made animals perfectly adapted to their environments. So there's really no question of historicity that arrives. Well, of course, the 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 beaks of finches will be you know, if they're eating nuts, they they need to be strong, you know. The other great accomplishment of Darwin is his theory of sexual selection. So there really are two types of selection. There's natural selection through struggle, uh, but there's also competition for mates. Prior to Darwin, the view was that the peacock's tail is for our amusement. A lot of the pre-Darwinian world is about how nature pleases us. It's been designed to please us. Darwin abandons all of that. And he says the peacock's tail is a puzzle because, and, and this had actually been recognized actually by the natural theologians. They realized that if you have a big showy tail, you are much more likely to be eaten. So what was the what was the the perfection of the peacock's tail. It was to please us. It was ornaments, much like flowers, flowers of the, of the bird world, these beautiful creatures. Well, Darwin says, no, that's not true. They, the, the animals are not trying to please us. They don't care about us at all. What they are doing is the male peacocks are displaying themselves to say, here I am, you know, accept me as a mate.
0: Darwin realized that a lot of the beauty found in nature was a result of sexual selection the aesthetic attraction between animals.
1: And that this explains a lot of sexual dimorphism in the animal world, uh, especially in birds, where it's in a way most prominent, because the the males typically need to attract females, and so they do that with this showy plumage. So his theory of sexual selection, that the aesthetics of the bird world and of many other parts of the world as well, are really to be explained by competition for mates. So natural selection, sexual selection, those are his two explanations for the beauty of the biodiversity around us.
0: Darwin didn't publish The Origin of Species right away. When he returned to the UK after his time at sea, he first wrote about his experiences in a book called The Voyage of the Beagle.
1: Most of his early reputation was from his diary of, uh, of The Voyage of the Beagle where he introduced to people to the strange habits and wonders of, of the natural world. Darwin is wondering at life and, and is amazed by it, the bioluminescence of the water, these fantastic birds he's discovering. So he is very much in the, uh, the kind of sacred worshiping aspect from the point of view of affect. He's, he's marveling at the tangled bank of nature, the beauty, the wonder, the sublime uh, uh, beauty of nature, which which in a way really comes to be his God. Uh, in a sense, much of what he does is exchange uh, the handiwork of nature for the handiwork of God. And that's actually one of the reasons his theory was so successful. But he doesn't reveal his hand in The Voyage of the Beagle. He waits until, until the origin. And there's, there's been a lot of puzzlement about why he waited so long to reveal his theory of of evolution because he'd actually developed it in the 1830s while he was still in his 20s and doesn't reveal it until uh, 1859. Could you tell us about the circumstances of finally publishing? So he's he's working on his theory, he sketches it uh, in, the, in already in the 1830s. He leaves an instruction that on his death, this first a 42-page manuscript and then a longer version, that, was, that that should be published. So he knows that he's landed on something important, but he's afraid uh, to publish. He knows this is, he, he's starting to realize the religious potential of this, meaning that it, this could really deal a, a fatal blow to a lot of, of uh, fundamental theological ideas. So he's definitely worried about that. And he delays and delays. And then finally this young upstart, a guy named uh, uh, Russell Wallace, uh, he comes along and comes up with the same uh, same theory. And Darwin is, is shocked and disappointed that he, he, he may be scooped. Um, but uh, together they do a presentation at the Linnaean Society in 1858 announcing this new theory, which Wallace has discovered through his voyages in Indonesia, interestingly, this same kind of biogeographical exploration. They present together, and uh, uh, interestingly, at the time, it fell flat because this is just a scientific presentation. So it's it's really often in retrospect that things uh, assume importance, and this is a great example of that. Um, So Darwin goes ahead and, and rushes A publication of a shorter version of his long manuscript. And Our Origin of Species is really a shortened version of what was a a much, much larger manuscript. So what happens when it's published?
0: Who who first reads it? And what are some of the first reactions?
1: Well, Darwin already had this good reputation, right? And they didn't expect it to be a huge success. They only printed something like 1,200 copies for the first run. Uh, And those were sold out instantly. But this
0: wasn't the whole public. Darwin's theory was met with some hostility, especially from the creationist community, who believed the universe and all organisms were a result of divine creation, not
1: evolution. There was hostility in different quarters, especially when fundamentalism got going in in the Americas. One of the interesting outcomes was a perception that evolution might be implying race mixing. So if you look at the Scopes trial, for example, which is one of the tests of whether evolution could be taught in the schools in the in 1920s in, uh, in, uh, in Appalachia, uh, a lot of the hostility to evolution was the idea that humans evolving from apes would be basically race mixing. It would mean that blacks and whites at some point had had sexual relations. And so... Uh, There's a lot of hostility coming from different quarters, but by and large, it's fair to say that within the scientific community, it's accepted pretty, pretty quickly. One of the key
0: reasons his theory found traction was that in the years leading up to its publication, other scientists were making significant progress in the fields of geology and paleontology. Advances in these fields were showing signs that the Earth was much older than suggested in Genesis, the biblical creation story that implies the Earth is 6,000 years old. One of the best early estimates for a more scientific dating of the Earth came from the British mathematician Lord Kelvin. Kelvin hypothesized that the Earth was roughly 20 million years old, based on the temperature of its core. Although it wasn't possible to prove, this soon became the accepted theory. But this estimate was a problem for Darwin. He didn't believe 20 million years was enough time for his theory of evolution to work. He thought the earth required more time to produce the enormous variation of plants and animals. As a solution, Darwin began to adopt some of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck's ideas of inheritance of acquired characteristics. Think back to that giraffe. Lamarck thought that giraffes had long necks because all throughout their lives they were stretching to reach higher and higher leaves. Lamarck believed these characteristics to be heritable, or transmissible, to offspring. This process is so much faster than the slower, random variation-based theory that Darwin believed in more fully. But 20 million years just wasn't enough time for the variation theory to work. So, out of necessity, he entertained Lamarck's theory of heritable traits.
1: It's not really fully disproven until Weissman in the 1880s in Germany. And what he shows is he, he cut off the—it's a morbid experiment—but he cut off the tails of mice and bred them. And no matter how many generations he would cut off the tails, all of their offspring would have tails. So, in fact, you cannot inherit things you've acquired in your lifetime. And, but that was actually after Darwin died. It wasn't until the
0: 1920s that we discovered the Earth is much older than Lord Kelvin suggested. Thanks to radiocarbon dating, scientists have found rocks and minerals on Earth that are at least 4.5 billion years old. Where does the idea of random variation come up, uh, of mutation? Because to me, the natural assumption would be you pass on a perfect copy of the parents. So where, where does variation come from?
1: Darwin was very close to pigeon breeding. He actually bred pigeons himself. Chicken breeding. Uh, he 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 was member a member of breeding societies. Breeders knew were very familiar with the fact that heredity is never perfect. It, it's in common sense. We know it's true with with children, uh, even in our own species. Right, there is variation. It's almost common sense. All that what was required that it be heritable. The older notion was that whatever variation there is is accidental or trivial and that there's a kind of a reinforcing trend that, well, yeah, you might have, you know, one leg shorter than the other, but that's a kind of a, a problem or a, a deviation or maybe something from your environment and it would be corrected in the next generation. What Darwin shows is that the variation knows no limit.
0: Before Darwin, the world was seen as generally stable. Variation was viewed as a fluke accident or a mistake and didn't mean much. Darwin's theory of evolution showed that with each new generation, there is slight variation. And if those variations are advantageous and hereditary, then the organism will have a better chance of survival, which would mean a greater chance of reproducing and passing those genes on. Take polar bears, for example. Before there were all-white polar bears in the Arctic, the bears were brown. Somewhere down the line, a brown bear gave birth to an all-white bear. This was a variation. This bear blended into its surroundings of snow and ice much better than all of its brown neighbors. This genetic variation camouflaged the bear, and therefore it had more success sneaking up on its prey than the brown bears. This was an advantageous, hereditary variation that it passed down to its offspring. These all-white bears were more successful hunters than the brown bears and eventually
1: became the dominant bear in that part of the world. Variation, when it's, when it's heritable, can keep you dr- driven into, a, uh, into something new. And, and Darwin realized that often it was by isolation that variation was allowed to um, go crazy, right? And, and it's actually true that on these small islands, um, if you have a, sp- a small population, whatever flukes happen can get magnified.
0: Okay, so he publishes this book and it's believed by the scientists that this is in fact true. Take us now down the story of how it starts to influence popular culture, um, popular beliefs, um, religious beliefs, and, you know, really starts to change the world just through these, these theories and ideas.
1: Well, uh, yeah, the origin of species certainly accelerates secular trends. There had been atheists, of course, before Darwin. Um, it, it, Fits with a kind of progressivism of the era, with a kind of hubris and uh, arrogance almost of the British Empire. Uh, people start comparing different civilizations to where they are on the scale of social evolution. So the whole field of anthropology is given a huge boost through evolution, and people start ranking uh, cultures by savagery, barbarism, and and civilization. Um, You get uh, efforts to say that uh, social progress is inevitable. Um, So it it would be hard to name a theory more used and abused than Darwin's theory. Uh, Racial theorists use it for equalitarian and inegalitarian purposes. The The racists say, look, those those are the lower races. They've not yet evolved up to our level. You know, the uh, certain races are closer to uh, apes, you know, and and so forth. So there's a lot of that. Um, But there's also people on the other side uh, pointing out that uh, uh, there's a common bond to not only uh, all of life, but all all of humans and that humans are we're, we're netted together. We're bonded together. Darwin is really the first to recognize that all humans evolved in Africa, that we're all Afri- we're all Africans. So the out of Africa theory, which is now accepted, uh, is really championed first by Darwin. Humans probably evolved where the primates are most diverse, and that's Africa. Now, a lot of people saw this as, as a threat, talking about the uh, animality of, of man, that we are just animals. Uh, this has been one of the problems uh, creationists oppose. So if if creationists were opposed to Darwin in the 20s because they were worried about race mixing, after World War II, a lot of creationists in America are, are worried that if you believe in evolution, then this would support abortion, this would support uh, equality of of the races or men and women, or it would, it would imply uh, uh, that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, that we're just animals. So the kind of animalization of humanity was one of the big threats of Darwin's theory. Um, that was a, that was, that's, that's been one right up through the present.
0: Part of the reason Darwin's theory of evolution is so important is that it gave profound insight into the story of how every human, every form of life came to be. This is something that we all have equal stake in.
1: It's really, the, in a sense, the ultimate explanation of our identity. Um, if, you know, if history is that which makes us possible, that which makes us real, this is the explanation of our biological history. It's how we came to be. It's the bond that links all animals and all plants to our, ourselves.
0: So in the same way that we argue over history we argue over what the meaning of darwin's theories are because it's ultimately a, an expression of our own identity.
1: Yeah, I think it is. Of course, one of the more diabolical aspects of how his theory was interpreted was that we should take the reins of evolution and manipulate it. And that's what gives rise to eugenics, it gives rise to racial hygiene in the Nazi period that if if we are just biological creatures and uh and we are full of imperfections why not make sure that the the strong survive and so take the weak and kill them this was one of the big themes that led to the holocaust uh to the mass sterilization um this idea that we should create an art we, we should become the guiders of evolution why 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 leave it to random variation and and selective retention when we can harness these reins of evolution and manipulate it for our own ends. And that becomes something uh, very dangerous as well. But it also became something beneficial. In
0: April of 2003, scientists completed the Human Genome Project, the first mapping of the human genome. This project gave humans the ability to create a complete genetic blueprint for building a human being. This blueprint helps scientists and doctors treat diseases and understand the health needs of individuals. The future of human evolution, like the future of any organism's evolution, is uncertain. But as long as the species exists, it will continue to evolve.
1: There will not be people like we have in in a million years, right, and there were not people like we have ten million years ago. You know our ancestors ten million years ago were furry furry little creatures, probably a couple feet couple feet long um and you know the, there's this whole question you know when did we become human it is not a finished form I mean, we don't say when did cockroaches become fully cockroach and when did horses become fully horse because that's a uh, we, we live only in a slice of time and the same is, is as true of humans as of horses or cockroaches we are becoming and and we are becoming and we are changing all the time and and that is an important thing to realize realize as well by
0: rewriting the tale of our origins Darwin made us humble. He took humans off of our divine throne and connected us to the rest of the animal kingdom. He showed us our branch on the great tree of life, where we've come from and where we might be headed.
1: He's really a historian of life and is part of this broader movement to study the history of all things that you can't understand anything apart from its history. History is, is, our, is our essence and life is no exception.
0: Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchi. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest.